you haven't turned there yet, you can be turning to Ruth chapter 4. On this first Sunday of Advent, I believe you will find that it is a very appropriate text to be studying for Advent season. And as will next Sunday, on our final time in Ruth will be as well. Because Ruth 4 is leaning into the birth of a long-anticipated son, by Naomi, or Ruth at least, to continue the line that will lead firstly to King David, and then ultimately to the greater King David, Jesus. A few names we're going to study today, and also next week, that exist in the genealogies, <coughs> beginning in both Matthew and Luke. So as we study, as we think about the Advent season, the anticipation, the coming birth of Jesus, because ultimately his redeeming us and saving us from our sins, uh, we find that underneath the genealogies, underneath the surface, if you will, is just boiling and bursting, pointing to Jesus. <clears throat> I invite you to stand this one last time as we hear the word of God this morning in Ruth 4. <clears throat> We read, Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. He turned aside and sat down, and he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. And then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of the, those sitting here in the, and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me so that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it. And I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. And then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times of Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day, that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech, and all that belonged to Kilian and Malan. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malan, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among the brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring the Lord will give you by this young woman. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I, I want to rely solely on your grace and your spirit to speak to us today. Everything I've prepared is worthless if your spirit is not at work. 
So we beg you to be at work. We pray that you would move hearts closer to you, some hearts that may not be redeemed or may not have responded in faith, some hearts that may be wayward or or not as close as they should be. Because, Father, we all need to be closer to you every day. Get me out of the way. Say what you would desire. And have your way among us, we pray, so that Jesus might be glorified. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Many believe that Peter the Apostle ultimately settled in Rome and was, for lack of better terms, the overseer of the church that met there. I won't go into all the details, arguments for or against, but let's assume that he was, and if he was, I wonder if he was the one who eventually read the letter to the Romans by Paul. Maybe Paul sent that before Peter settled in Rome, maybe Paul sent that while Peter was there, we don't know. But I do know, according to Peter's epistles in places like 2 Peter 3.16, that Peter is aware of Paul's letters and he himself considers them scripture. And it hit me one time, as I was studying the book of Romans, what was Peter thinking if he read the word, <coughs> for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person. One would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And I wonder if, in Peter's mind, was taken back to that dark, frightful night in the courtyard, when Jesus was being sent through the ringer in that mock trial that was just dead set on Jesus' execution. And meanwhile, Peter was being accused by a simple teenage girl of being an associate of Jesus. And all the while, Peter, Jesus' loyal friend Peter, was denying it every time it was brought up. Eventually to where Peter ran and hid away in a strange while there went Jesus in those very moments of Peter's dark, denying sin, there went Jesus to die while Peter was still weak, while Peter was still a sinner. We find that this is really the state for all of us, even sometimes to this day for the saints, that we still struggle at times with sin, we still war against the flesh, and Jesus, in his eternal omniscience, past, present, and future, dies for us while we are still weak. He saves us while we are in the middle of our sins. And who's up there on the cross? Jesus. And Jesus alone that saves us. It's his joy and his voluntary decision and his promise to. Boaz promised Naomi and Ruth that he would deal with the law to redeem Ruth. What's interesting to me is in the entire book of Ruth, we come across the only scene where Naomi and Ruth are really out of the picture, out of the scene as a whole. And the author hones in on what Boaz is doing to redeem Ruth. It's another picture on how God works on our behalf while we are out of the picture in many ways, trusting that he is dealing with the law 
but we are unavailable to see it or fully fathom it. So Ruth and Naomi are trusting Boaz to deal with the law, though they are not present to witness it. If you were here last week, you know that Ruth had snuck down to the threshing floor and sought from Boaz to be married by him, to be redeemed. And Boaz is just floored, plumb happy, that Ruth would consider him. He basically says in contemporary terms, there are plenty of more eligible, nice-looking young dudes who are smitten with you in town. But you chose me. How could I turn you down? But in this culture that Ruth and Boaz are in, there are a few hurdles to go over. Ruth is a foreigner, and in fact the law has told us in Deuteronomy that Moabites, which is what Ruth is, are to 100% never ever fellowship with Israelites. And we saw the picture of conversion in Ruth 1, where Ruth basically professes, fine, I'm an Israelite. (laughs) Uh, And she verbally denounces all that it means to be a Moabite, just as we verbally denounce all that it means to be a sinner and citizen of this world, and we seek to be a saint and citizen in God's kingdom. That is what Ruth has done, as she's come to God's covenant people of Israel. Furthermore, Boaz saw in Ruth noble, virtuous character. At the end of chapter 3, Boaz called Ruth the exact Hebrew term from Proverbs 31, an excellent woman, a worthy woman, a noble woman. And so we left off after Boaz says, yes, I'll marry you, but there's another man in line who lawfully could have you. So we bring in the law again, and we think about the laws of redemption and leveret marriage, and that is Ruth, along with her mother-in-law, Naomi, are widows. And by Hebrew law, nearest family members were to take widows and have heirs to ensure the lineage and estates of Hebrew men. So whether it be through Elimelech's wife, Naomi, or Elimelech's son, really the last eligible heir, Malan and Killian, these were Elimelech's boys, and Malan had Ruth as a wife, So it was really of the law to take Ruth because she was the wife of the most recent eligible heir. But there is another man closer to Naomi and Ruth in the family than Boaz. And Boaz basically says, I'd love to marry you, but lawfully that guy has first rights and he's not spoken up on the matter. So I will deal with that immediately. And then sends her home with a gift and, to, and for her mom, and he's basically saying, I'm still blessing you, I'm not going to drag my feet on this. And Naomi believed that because she told Ruth at the very end of chapter 3, for the man will not rest, but will settle this matter today. And lo and behold, we read in Ruth 4.1, Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friends, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. The gate of a town basically served as a town hall and a courthouse combined into one. It was a place where people could come to meet. It was open and public for matters of the law to be witnessed. That was what's planned when it was built. Uh, It would have benches provided to sit in the shade of the high walls of town. And I'm seeing Boaz give Ruth the bushels of grain that he gave her, and then he spruces himself up and headed directly to the gate. He comes there, sits down, and sees eventually, quote, the Redeemer. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, and sit down here. 
If you've been reading our study guides, James mentions this, or if you have study notes in your Bible, you've heard the name for this man, what the ESV calls friend, is basically a Hebraic expression similar to our terminology for Mr. So-and-so, Mr. Such-and-such, or John Doe. I bring that up because what's interesting is every name in the book of Ruth reflects their character. Elimelech means God is my king, and though Elimelech left God's kingdom, I think God is showing himself to still be gracious king over his family. Naomi means pleasant, and she's been really pleasant, blessing everyone, wishing rest for Ruth, wishing rest for Orpah. Ruth means friend, and she's been a loyal friend to Naomi. Boaz means in him is strength, and he has been a source of unwavering godly strength throughout the book. Even Malan and Killian's names match what happens to them. Their names are diseased and dying. Lo and behold, that's what they did. So it seems, whether these were real names or prophetically accurate names given by the author to represent their character, it's rather interesting when the author chooses to not reveal the name of the nearer Redeemer. Some commentators believe that he has no name because he has no character. (laughs) Let's see for ourselves. Verse 2, it says, And he, that is Boaz, took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. What's interesting is the redemption law is really coming into play by the initiation of Naomi and Ruth here. Naomi is the one who recalled the law of God about the Redeemer. She prompted Ruth to go and propose marriage to Boaz. Ruth proposed marriage. See, there was no sort of law stating that a countdown started and people like in Naomi and Ruth's position had X amount of days to make sure someone is redeeming them. So rather, it is really a matter of moral obligation on which Boaz is acting here. Let's try to remember that. <clears throat> What Naomi and Ruth requested of Boaz is really what John Doe Redeemer should have been doing. The law of redemption taken from Leviticus 25 really dealt with land, possessions, and material goods to make sure and maintain a family's standing was secured. The proverbial estate could be sold and kept in the family first. That's the law of redemption. So as John Doe passes by the gate, Boaz takes ten men. We're not told if this was a required amount. Nevertheless, it is a substantial amount because Boaz wants tons of witnesses, no one to question what he's done in the future. Boaz lays it out for John Doe. To make clear of the context for you, let me give you Kevin's lame translation of the Bible. Boaz is in essence saying, hey bud, I don't know if you realize this, But Elimelech's widow and widowed daughter-in-law have been living off my gleanings for the past three months. Since harvest season is over, they're going to have no income. And the property of Elimelech's going to go to waste or to an outside family member, at least until the year of Jubilee, which was a year every seven years in Hebrew culture where 
Things like this were redeemed, debts were canceled. That's why it was jubilee. What Boaz is doing subtly when he says in verse 4, by in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the, el- of the elders of my people, if you will redeem it, redeem it, but if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I am coming after you. It's really coming out John Doe Redeemer from a moral conviction, saying the law of redemption could honor Elimelech and keep this land and the family. Boaz, what he didn't state, if he were a lesser man, could have said, they've been in town for three months, you're their closest kinsman redeemer, the whole town knew when Naomi showed up, where have you been? Right? Beyond the law, moral conviction. Right thing to do. Now, all John Doe Redeemer hears from this is really, oh, more land. Yeah, I could chip in and pay Ruth and Naomi a sum of some money. They probably don't need that much money. Keep it in the family. Fulfill my moral obligation. Do that Redeemer thing. Sure, I can do all that. Then Boaz said, the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Here is an interesting thing. Boaz is tacking on a separate law, a law of leveret marriage from Deuteronomy 25 onto the law of redemption from Leviticus 25. As far as I can study and what many people waste ink over, maybe not wasting too much ink, but whatever they debate over, is that there's no connection between the law of redemption and the law of leveret marriage in the law. <laughs> that is... To fulfill one of these laws never implied or assumed that you would have to fulfill the other. Ruth and Naomi is such a unique case that Boaz is making a bit of a jump to assume that since Elimelech has no heirs, it would be the Redeemer's job then to take on leveret marriage. It fits with Boaz's character because he went above and beyond the laws of gleaning, giving Ruth more, and treating her far more graciously than he's required to by law. I want to take a minute and point out something that really comes down to semantics. Even though I am saying that Boaz is, quote, going above and beyond the law, Jesus makes it clear on the Sermon on the Mount that the law has always meant to come from love, not come from what can I get away with and what do I have to do. Does that make sense? The law is not the law of the letter, but of love. And so Boaz is insisting on these two laws together. He says, do you not see the loving reason for this? Right? So when Jesus in the law said, it's not about who you don't murder, so you're a good boy. The law is about who do you not even think about in your heart who you hate. That's the law. Jesus points out that the law was never concerned about what you did and didn't do, but how your heart should and should not operate. Does that make sense? So the law says, redeem property here, and over there it says, take your dead brother's wife, and Boaz is saying, don't you realize it's talking about people? Don't you realize it's talking about legacies of families? Don't you realize the reason for the law is to show us what love looks like? And so what does love look like in this case with Boaz and Naomi? But in the case of Boaz connecting the law of redemption and the law of leverage marriage, it's rather convenient for Boaz. 
because he wants Ruth, and he would also get Elimelech's possessions in the process. Beyond convenience, I believe for Boaz, it comes back to moral obligation, the heart, and the intent of the law. Boaz, if he were speaking cold and blatantly, was basically trying to say, so you want the property of your dead relative and the money it generates, but that leaves Ruth and Naomi to fend for themselves then. Is that what you're about, John Doe Redeemer? Now again, there seems to be no connection, and it would have been lawful for John Doe to redeem Elimelech's resources and not marry Ruth. Laid out in the law of leveret marriage, specifically in Deuteronomy 25, 7-10, should a person refuse to take the women and not do their duty, that person basically gets a bad name for not doing his duty. <laughs> so we look at what John Doe Redeemer, look at what he says. He says in verse 6, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. What seems to be John Doe's reasoning, lest I impair my own inheritance, is financial in nature in proportion to heirs. John Doe would have liked more income, could have increased his inheritance to his own kids, but then to take Ruth as a wife and have kids through her, well, that would, then he would have to consider his and Ruth's kids for the inheritance as well. Some speculate that beyond his inheritance, perhaps John Doe had an aversion to Ruth with her being a Moabite, and the disdain of Moabites in Israel. Boaz seemed to think that many townsmen liked Ruth, though. That's what he said a chapter back in saying all his fellow townsmen knew that she was a worthy woman. That, coupled with the fact that everyone in the book of Ruth, except the author, really has been silent to Ruth being a Moabite, except for Boaz here. And nobody has ever hinted any reference to the law about Moabite exclusion in Deuteronomy. I would be more inclined to think that John Doe may have just been a little selfish and greedy, wanting more land, not wanting the responsibility of Ruth and Naomi. But, like any man, is he going to, in the presence of town elders, in the presence of Boaz, make such a self-centered decision. Even if he knew his legal rights and laws, and that is lawfully be able to redeem the land and not take Ruth, is he going to publicly say, hold on, Boaz, you're throwing these two laws together. There's never been a norm or a necessity for this. I'm going to take Elimelech's land if I want to. You feel free to marry Ruth, and then we'll part Elimelech's immediate family from their property, excluding any heirs, of inheritance from Elimelech's land because it's still in the family, well, that would show himself to be a greedy man, uncaring about Naomi and Ruth. Apparently, the moral conviction worked because he said, take my right of redemption. We continue in verse 7. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, one drew off a sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off the sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilin and Malan. Also Ruth the Moabite, <clears throat> the widow of Malan, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place, you are witnesses to this day. We see in here just how Boaz, in his mind, 
connected these two laws. As I made mention earlier, the law of redemption was meant to perpetuate a family's possessions into the future, but also to ensure it stayed in the family, direct heirs were needed. So, through levirate marriage, Boaz was assuming the responsibility of coming into the place of Malan, and his sons would be halved by Boaz and Ruth would receive what Malan had received through Elimelech. Furthermore, <clears throat> whatever social standing that Elimelech and Malan would have had would be continued through this act of redemption and marriage. That's what the author means when he writes, the name of the dead would not be cut off among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. That means that Elimelech's family will remain in genealogies. And if you're not familiar with this fact, there are genealogies all over your Bible. Because genealogies were big deals to Hebrews. Consider them like resumes. We hand in resumes to jobs we want to be accepted at. And we say, I've worked through these jobs. I refer you to these people who can attest to my character. I have these skills. In Jewish times, when somebody came into town and we wanted to know who he is, we would look at their genealogy. And we would say, oh, you're a direct descendant from Benjamin, uh, one of the 12 tribes. Oh, and you're this son of Benjamin's. And begin to size a person up by their genealogy more so than we might think about who they know contemporarily. We see this quite plainly as we continue in our text. First of all, we note in verse 11, Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. Right? This means job done. We've witnessed this transaction. Everybody will be able to look back to this day and say, Here the right of redemption was given to Boaz, the right of lever of marriage as well. No doubts, no question. And then, just another confirmation for me personally, that nobody was really holding the whole Moabite stigma against Ruth, but rather accepted that she had professed her loyalty to Israel and threw off all that it meant to be a Moabite. We see the people at the gate then say, picking up in verse 11, May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. This is a big deal, a really big deal. This is an extreme well-wish. This is almost over the top. To put it in our day, suppose a prodigal son in our community came home with an ex-Muslim woman. And then the prodigal son announced, I'm getting married to her. And then the people would respond like, we hope she's like Mary, the mother of Jesus. Or as you know, just pick your highly respected, esteemed woman of the past, See, we're talking about Israel, the man himself, his wives that they are referring to, and they're saying, we would love to see Ruth flourish and become like those two gals, the wives of the, of the man that our nation is named after. These are particular blessings as well, because we remember what about Rachel and Leah? They struggled off and on with barrenness. Leah had four sons to begin with, but then she was barren, Rachel was barren, so she gave Jacob, that is Israel, to her servant. Just watch with me how this line, this line develops. Then, it's kind of an interesting family tree. <clears throat> 
As you read Genesis chapters 29 through 30, you just get confused at who's barren, who's not, whose servants are having whose kids. And you might be saying, so is this really a blessing or a wishing of a curse? The people at the gate are saying to Boaz, we pray that the Lord ultimately opens up the womb of Ruth who gave Malan no sons, but may she flourish in your care and build up your family as the Lord eventually opened up the wombs of Leah and Rachel. And may you be renowned in Bethlehem. It is a blessing. They're wishing the esteem of the nation's founders on Boaz and Ruth. We'll find out next week that he is renowned, and meanwhile, John Doe, no name, is not named ever in genealogies because he didn't marry Ruth the Moabite. We find another connection of the past, though, as we continue to read the blessings of these folks. And they say, And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. If you thought Leah and Rachel was kind of an awkward blessing to wish, with all the backbiting, barrenness, and so forth between Leah and Rachel, this is a more interesting blessing to wish on Boaz and Ruth, but it has everything to do with Boaz and Ruth's situation. Over in Genesis 38, one of Israel's son, sons named Judah, which is the line in which Boaz, Ruth, and Jesus come from. Judah had a wife, and his wife had a few sons. One named Er took a Canaanite wife named Tamar. Sound familiar? She's not an Israelite. Well, the Bible tells us in Genesis 38 that Er was just wicked in God's sight, and so Er died. The Leveret marriage must have been already in play in this day before the law written in Leviticus, because next in the line was a guy named Onan. Onan took Tamar. You can read the details later, but to be decent, let's just say Onan was not intentionally producing sons for Tamar. God put Onan to death for that, too. The other son in line was really too young for Tamar. So Judah, her father-in-law, said, well, live in my house and just wait for this third son of mine to grow up. Well, the boy grows up, but he never marries Tamar. This is because Judah has been distracted as he loses another child, this time a daughter. We're not told why about this one. He starts mourning, takes off on a long trip. Meanwhile, Tamar isn't producing any sons. She's not being taken care of. She's not being married. She's not finding rest as Naomi had sought for her foreign daughter, Ruth. So Tamar hatches a plan, and it's nowhere near like the plan that Naomi hatched for Ruth. She basically disguises herself as a prostitute, goes to the town that Judah is at in mourning, and Judah, not really realizing it was Tamar, takes her. Tamar, still in disguise and not recognized by Judah, basically says, I want payment. So Judah says, I'll give you a goat. But he didn't have a goat with him right then and there. So Tamar says, well, I'll take your signet ring and your staff as a pledge that you're going to give me this payment. Tamar becomes pregnant. A while later, Judah hears that Tamar has been sexually immoral, having been a prostitute and pregnant by it. Judah had not yet put two and two together and basically says, being the decent, non-hypocritical guy that he is, yes, that's sarcasm, how dare her bring her out here and let's burn her at the stake. As she's being brought to the stake, she hands a messenger the signet ring and the staff and tells the messenger, here, give these to Judah and ask him who they belong to, because I'm pregnant by this man. By this time, you're probably like, I forgot stories like this were in the Bible. And for good reason. I mean, what do you do with this? 
a lot of this is, yes, different culture, but that doesn't change the fact that it was immoral. Tamar was in a hard spot. If she wanted to have any life, she didn't take the route she should have taken. taken. Definitely not the route Ruth and Naomi took. Nevertheless, Judah felt convicted because when he received the signet ring and staff, he says, she is more righteous than I since I did not give her to my son. Genesis 38, 26. Tamar doesn't burn, but she has two sons, a guy named Perez and another named Zerah. That was in Genesis before the law. That was one of Israel's sons and granddaughter-in-laws and great-grandson Perez. Over in the time of the judges, so the book of Ruth 1.1 tells us, a time that is usually wrought with selfish people doing what is right in their own eyes, not affirming God as king, I wonder if the people are saying to Boaz, this has been done the right way. Ruth is no Tamar, but she is a foreigner. And you, Boaz, are better than Er, Onan, or their father Judah, in that you are not wicked in God's sight. You are doing what Judah eventually did after being cornered. And so, may the Lord bless you two humble, righteous people. And like God provided Perez out of that situation with Judah and Tamar, Tamar, who, like Ruth the foreigner, had no children and was in a desperate spot, may God richly bless you and the better Tamar, Ruth, with another Perez. Do you hear that? We're going to talk about some other family members next week as Ruth ends on a genealogy. But as we bring all this to a close, I want you to see with just those few names wished upon Boaz and Ruth is the same amazing story opening, happening with Boaz and Ruth. And that is God works true, unimaginable, unbelievable, beyond gracious redemption. This is the very line that Jesus Christ is coming from. We're coming to the end of a story where one man named Elimelech left the kingdom of God, took his wife and two sons with him. The two sons died, left his wife in a pagan country with no providers, comes back penniless, but with a Moabite of all people, widow, poor, no prospects. We've just witnessed the very act of redemption right here, and they are saved and they are secured. We talked about Jacob, conniving Jacob with his two wives and ultimately four mothers of twelve kids, eleven of which who hate Jacob's favored son, Joseph, which that answers why they hated him. Another son named Judah who has two wicked sons and a daughter-in-law who sleeps with them, and this is Jesus' family we're talking about. Some of you are like, I kind of don't want to talk about the dirty closets in my family's past, but wow, that's for the entire world to see. Well, let me bring this home for you. Right now, there are situations where it may not be incest, or it may not be the problem of multiple wives and babies and barrenness. It could be widows without money or hope or a future. I know some of you, and I know exactly what that situation is for you. And do you need to be reminded again today of the unimaginable, unbelievable Redeemer we serve? I told you at the beginning of our series in Ruth, what the overarching word or theme that I found to be in the book of Ruth, this word that captures every theme in Ruth to me, from love to redemption to grace to abundance to covenant to community, and that word is hope. Hope. I want to leave you with unshakable, unbreakable, unmistakable hope today. We serve a God greater than Boaz. You say, Kevin, I've been bringing this problem to the Lord for every day for the past year, the past five years, the past 20 years, where is God at? 
And I say, as Naomi did, he is not resting, he is settling the matter. In Genesis 3, there was a need of a Redeemer. Thousands of years later, the Redeemer showed up in the person and the work of Jesus so that the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers. I know that some of you and your problems have been brewing or started years ago, but know this, that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And the God that redeems sinners by his son Jesus' sacrifice is the same God who cared about two widows, one of them not even an Israelite, in the fields of Bethlehem, on the time of the judges, is the same God who worked out the sins of a Canaanite and an unrighteous Israelite named Judah to bring about a son in the lineage. The same God who worked through Jacob and his two wives to have Joseph to save them from famine. It's the same God, it's a God like Boaz, who went to the gate of the city to redeem Naomi and Ruth, people of his own blood. So Jesus went further outside the gate to redeem people through his own blood. While the nearer Redeemer could not redeem Naomi and Ruth because the cost was too high, so Boaz redeemed out of his own desire, willingness, ability, and graciousness. So we too cannot redeem ourselves because the cost is too high, Thus, Jesus redeems us out of his own desire, willingness, ability, and graciousness. And Boaz testifies to the witnesses that there he has redeemed Naomi and Ruth who were not around. So Jesus testifies that it is finished. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Redeeming sinners unaware that he was in the very act of redeeming. In Boaz's redemption of Ruth, he perpetuates the name of the dead in the land of the living. Just as Jesus who redeems his bride and perpetuates the dead in the land of the living. And because Boaz's redemption, his sons and daughters will inherit their father's estate, so too shall we, being redeemed by Jesus, we become sons and daughters, heirs of our father's estate. Let's pray. Father, we come to your word and you seem to be saying something in every page of scripture. You scream at us redemption. You scream at us love. You scream at us, look at what I have done. So Father, we come and behold and see what you have done again. Father, I pray earnestly that it produces the hope that you want us to experience. Father, we don't just come to the Advent season every year to focus at that time about what you've done. We come every time we come to scriptures. We are blown away by how you have redeemed us. We are blown away at how good and gracious and hope-giving you are that you would redeem sinners like us. Father, if any of us need that hope tangibly today, would you bless us with that? Father, if any of us look at this and we're not moved by it, would you convict us? Because this is what we desperately need in our life. This is the answer of all of our problems. This is where we can find all the hope we need. This is a land flowing with milk and honey. So we pray that you would move us with it. Father, as we go out into our community, communities, would you use us to reach others with this good news? 
And would you move us each day as we come to your word in prayer and in the scriptures with the amazing reality of this truth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.